As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. And we're back. Listen for details about exclusive offers for our listeners from tonight's sponsors, Casper Mattresses, Stamps.com, The Great Courses Plus, and Blue Apron. I'd like to dedicate tonight's show to my wife, Emily, without whom we wouldn't have made it this far. As of yesterday, she and I have been married 22 years. She is talented, fearless, and a true inspiration to me, and I'm lucky to know her. She also has been exceedingly patient and understanding of all the time I've spent researching, writing, recording, and formerly editing for this show. She took a leap of faith with us when we spent a small fortune on recording equipment with no promise of income of any kind, possibly without knowing it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you, Emily. I cannot stress enough the thanks that we need to express for your infinite patience with our folly. Yes, and I should have dedicated a show to you way earlier than two years in. A quick program note for our listeners. The Mary Celeste series is being broken into three parts for a variety of reasons. So tonight, you'll hear mostly about the history of the ship leading up to the vanishing of the crew, and then covering the time period after as well. Part three, on the theories behind what happened, will be out in one week on next Wednesday, August 17th. We've got a lot to cover, so let's cast a weather eye on the Mary Celeste Ghost Ship Part Two. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. The sea has never been friendly to man. At most, it has been the accomplice of human restlessness. Joseph Conrad, novelist. Join us tonight as we dive deeper into the mystery of the Mary Celeste than most who've gone before us. Okay, so let's recap briefly the story of the Mary Celeste from part one. After being loaded with cargo, including but not limited to 1,701 barrels of denatured alcohol, she set sail from New York on November 7, 1871, with 10 souls aboard. She'd been scheduled to depart on November 5th from Pier 50 in Manhattan, but the weather was bad and Captain Benjamin Spooner Briggs wisely sought safe harbor at anchor off the coast of Staten Island for two days until things improved. She was bound for Genoa with her cargo and put out to sea with an optimistic plan for a safe Atlantic crossing. Captain Briggs was accompanied by his wife, Sarah, and their two-year-old daughter, Sophia Matilda. Along with seven able-bodied seamen, all with good reputations and experience. The following quote is paraphrased and abbreviated from Paul Begg's book, Mary Celeste, The Greatest Mystery of the Sea, which, by the way, has been a great source for us. We highly recommend it. We have a link to it in our show notes. Quote, Captain Briggs wrote to his mother, 
Our vessel is in beautiful trim, and I hope we shall have a fine passage, but I have never been in her before, and I can't say how she'll sail. We seem to have a very good mate and steward, and I hope I shall have a pleasant voyage. End quote. Unfortunately, that wouldn't come to pass. 28 days after she departed New York, the Mary Celeste was found abandoned at sea by the crew of the De Gratia, who'd set sail about 10 days after she did from New York, with a full cargo of petroleum bound for the same destination. Her cabin had an eerie feeling of having just been abandoned. There was shaving gear laid out, a partially finished dress for Sophia on Sarah's sewing machine, and an incomplete navigational calculation on the first mate's chart table. It was clear that everyone had abandoned ship in quite a hurry. The crew of the De Gratia, under command of Captain David Reed Morehouse, split up and with skeleton crews on both vessels, recovered the Mary Celeste for salvage to Gibraltar. And that's where we'll pick up the story and surrounding details tonight as we discuss both the period prior to her disappearance and recovery, as well as what happened after she sailed into Gibraltar without a trace of her original crew. All right, so that's the briefest sum up of her discovery, and I think we should make our corrections to part one before we go any further. We have had ongoing research with this particular episode. The ARC has been pretty feverish about it, which has been great. We came across some new information after we recorded part one that led me to want to make a correction to some of the data that we released in part one. There was some evidence that contradicts one of the things that we said in part one that I felt is very significant, and that is we had said that Captain Morehouse of the De Gratia and Captain Benjamin Spooner Briggs of the Mary Celeste were friends. And there's a lot of sources that indicate that they were friends. And the reason that's important is because it affects how you analyze the likelihood of foul play and also just the, you know, the reaction when they came upon this abandoned vessel. It's kind of the seed of the whole collusion uh, theory in that somehow Morehouse and Briggs had planned this way ahead. We're going to meet up, do their deeds. I guess Briggs was going to just take off into the sunset right. with his family, except he left his son behind with the grandmother yeah. because of school. You have to establish that they are good friends, good enough to kind of hatch this plan and carry it out. And and I think, wasn't it Morehouse's widow, 50 years later, said, oh, I think they had dinner the night before. Yes, there is some testimony to that. And actually, that's what I want to talk about. It's actually author Paul Begg's opinion that there's no evidence that Captain Briggs and Morehouse actually knew each other. Other than the fact that they kind of sailed with the same cargo, were captains of the same nature, you know. Yeah, they yeah. had similar career paths and the, the not the exact same cargo, but it right. was shipped by the same company. Yes. Yeah, so he found that the claim that they knew each other was from an earlier book from 1927 published by J.G. Lockhart entitled A Great Sea Mystery, The True Story of the Mary Celeste. 1927 would have been 56 years after the incident, so there's possibly still survivors. And in this book, Lockhart mentioned a letter he had from Morehouse's widow, which is what you had just made a reference to, that they knew each other. But Begg in his book, which we've already mentioned, Mary Celeste, The Greatest Mystery of the Sea, states in his footnotes that he finds it hard to believe the two captains were friends since it was never once brought up in the salvage hearing or later confirmed by Captain Briggs' family. So what we have to remember here is at the salvage hearing, Captain Morehouse was there. He yeah, certainly, testifying. Yeah, he yeah. certainly would have said, no, we were friends. I would have never done that. Yeah. And so, and there's transcripts of the hearing, so it's easy to determine everything that was said there, and that never came up. And it's hard to believe that if they were friends, that it wouldn't have at least been there, regardless of what the widow, widow Morehouse is saying. Yeah about them knowing each other. So it's a little bit of a weird thing. I'm more of a mind to believe that they probably knew each other through professional channels, but weren't really friends or even that close. Right. It's easy to believe that they would have known each other just 
uh, because they're from the same area. And again, shipping from the same company. You may have heard, you may have heard the name, but they weren't close compadres. Yeah. And who knows why she said they had dinner together. When in a case like this, when all these things are coming up about the salvage and the title, she may have been lying yeah. to protect Captain Morehouse's honor. She might have said, hey, look, this is my husband. I know him. Yeah. He would never have assaulted this other crew right. or this other captain. And an easy way to confirm that is to say, hey, they knew each other. She's backing him up. Yeah, exactly. But remember, she's elderly at this point. True. And, and it's been a long time since this happened. Also, there was a lot of aspersions cast upon Morehouse by Flood. Yes. And yeah. Flood, we're going to talk about Flood in a little bit. Frederick Solly Flood, who was the Queen's proctor in the Vice Admiralty Court of Gibraltar and the Attorney General, he was the guy that oversaw the salvage hearing, and he was convinced there had been foul play aboard the Mary Celeste at the hands of the De Gratia crew. So, obviously, if he was being accusatory in that nature in the hearings, you would think that Morehouse would have said, hey, this was my buddy, and yeah. he never did say that. Right. So, right. That's, that's just something to consider. So, we regret the error in part one. For people that have only listened to part one and may never hear part two, they'll be missing. <laughs> well, they probably didn't care that much to begin with. So. Yeah, that's yeah. true. So let's talk about Son of a Gun before we go any further. Yeah, that's an interesting thing. More than a few people wrote in about this, so we're presenting a bit of an amalgamation of what they said. This explanation is a combination of information we received courtesy of listener Mitch Freitas, Fred Patel, and former Coast Guard officer Jeff Wheelton. Mitch is a Maritime Studies master's candidate, and Officer Wheelton sailed as a crew member on a square-rigged bark across the Atlantic. And Fred is just a great listener like the rest of you. So, yes. Yeah, who wrote in with an interesting comment. Yes. We have no idea of his background, but <laughs> yeah. everyone seemed to have the, sort of the same idea about the origin of Son of a Gun. So all three of them mentioned that if a woman was giving birth on board, she would be doing so on the gun deck of the vessel. Now, Fred had pointed out that women were apparently not allowed on deck while underway, he also indicated that in order to keep the woman's reputation free from blemish and not name the plethora of sailors who might have been the father, the child was said to be fathered by the guns, so a son of a gun. Aha! Officer Wilton goes on to say that the crew would apparently sometimes lay a pregnant woman who was having difficulty giving birth near a cannon that would be fired off with gunpowder only in the belief that the concussion of the blast would help her give that extra push. So another possible origin for the phrase, son of a gun, which I did. Boy, I did. <laughs> no, I got to tell you. you yeah, yeah. I, I can't think of anything yeah. that my wife would have wanted less than a cannon, a cannon being, being fired, fired next to yeah. her when our son was born. Right. Nice work, maritime history. Well, it might scare, you, scare it out of you. <laughs> well, yeah. Officer Wheelton went on to add that at the horse latitudes, when the ships were in the known doldrums there, they would run through their supplies quickly and they would be required to eat their horses if they were stuck there for too long. Okay, so now that's different from what you said about them throwing them overboard. Well, you know, I heard that a long time ago in, uh, it might have been even grade school, so it may have been couched a little for the, <laughs> but I'm telling you, that's, no, that's what I heard. Well, yeah. Look, eat the horse, like, oh, I'm really full, let's just throw the other two overboard. Yeah, both but work. The idea, though, is that you were running through your supplies because there's, oh, I learned, I learned this term recently, be calmed which means there's no wind into the sails to get the ship propelled. Yes. It's just sitting there kind of— I've suffered that at, yeah. at sea a few times myself. Well, that's the term, the doldrums. People are in the doldrums. You're just kind of lounging. You're, uh, you, know, you don't have the wind at Every, your back. Yeah, everything yeah. I did in my life up till we started this podcast. Was in the doldrums. <laughs> yeah. So you're just kind of cruising around with the currents. But yeah. that's the point you're trying to— You might be down in supplies. You feel like a horse steak. Yeah. And no. you're also trying no. to get rid of the weight. Why did I say yeah to that? Yeah. What? 
Yeah. I, don't, I don't want a horse steak. Hey, people in the 30s in America used to eat horse. Yeah, I guess the, uh, you're hungry. You, know. you eat what you can find. So anyway, yes, I believe that. I'm sure that they ate the horses, made use of them as uh, just either way, protein. It's not good for the horses. It's not. No, well, well, they're, they're either being the, thrown overboard yeah, or they're being eaten. You're the last consideration. But my point is that you're trying to lessen the burden on the ship so right. that any wind you might get it's easier to move the ship. You can make more use of the wind. And also, you could, if you're stuck there a while, your food might be going bad. Things might be happening, and it, it does make sense that they would have to consume. Yeah. Because they have to make up. They have a certain amount of food on board, and they've added an extra week or two of sitting in the doldrums. This is, by the way, uh, 30 degrees north and south of the equator. That's where the horse latitudes are. There's very little wind in that channel. Yeah, it's sort of circles. It's There's not much happening. It's kind of like a figure eight almost. Yeah, and, yeah. It's just, yeah. It, right. You're just kind of languishing there. Yeah, exactly. And uh, as opposed to the trade winds. Right. Zip you along. But anyway, I'd heard it as, yeah, she may have eaten a horse, but really we're just throwing them overboard and uh, hoping they can swim somewhere. Either way, we love hearing from you guys. Thanks for writing in about that. We were fortunate to be able to add those facts into part two here before we get back to the story. And now let's take a quick break to talk about one of our sponsors. We talked about Casper mattresses when they first reached out to us a few shows ago. And since then, I have honestly really been enjoying the mattress they sent me. No kidding. Anyone who's ever been mattress shopping and gone in a store has faced high-pressure commission-based sales tactics and absurd markups to boot. And usually you don't even get a chance to sleep on the mattress you like. Casper gives you 100 risk-free nights to do that. Their award-winning sleep surface was developed in-house and ships directly to you in a relatively small box that will make you think there is no way a mattress is in there, and I want to see the machine that folds that thing up to get it in there. Yeah, that's got to be an interesting process. Yeah. The Casper is an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. It combines springy latex and supportive memory foams to create an award-winning sleep surface with just the right sink and just the right bounce. Time Magazine even named it one of the best inventions of 2015. It's an award-winning mattress that won't disappoint. As Scott said a minute ago, try Casper for 100 nights risk-free in your own home. If you don't love it, they'll pick it up and refund you everything. They're made right here in America, and they're affordable to start with, with a king-sized mattress being just $950 and the smaller sizes being less than that. Compare that to $1,500 and up for the marked-up mattresses you might find at a store. Get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting www.casper.com slash AL and use promo code AL. Terms and conditions apply. The webpage they set up for our listeners makes it very easy. So visit casper.com slash AL today. Okay, so let's have a timeline discussion. Excellent idea, because that will cover all manner of things about the ship and the story. This story starts with a vessel called the Amazon. Which is, uh, you know, uh, relevant because of the uh, the Olympics taking place now. Yeah. Well, we mentioned this in part one. The Mary Celeste was actually originally named the Amazon. And we also mentioned in part one, when we went through our list of superstitions, that renaming a vessel is kind of the cardinal sin of bad luck. It might be the biggest one. There's yeah. a whole ritual that you're supposed to do yeah. where you burn the old name, you put it in a can or something. And oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And we don't know if that was done. We mentioned the, the specifics of that ritual in part one, but I'm kind of doubting it was done. And you're going to find out why when we talk about how many times a ship changed hands and 
and what happened. This thing's been passed around quite a bit. Yes. And I'll say this before I forget it. It started to give me kind of a Christine vibe. Yeah. A Stephen King, like this thing. Not that it's out really to squash any of its uh, no, occupants, but, but it's just not a great history to the yeah. ship. Yeah. Well, yeah. And that's possibly one of the reasons they renamed her. I mean, yeah, after well, yeah, all, if actually, everyone knows her as Christine. Right. And then you got, <laughs> yeah. what, you find her in a junkyard, you paint her, you put her back on the market. You may like, this is Juliet. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> Well, that's a good thing to keep in mind because this is a merchant ship. It's not a pleasure vessel. Yeah. This thing's been built to make money. It also had been retrofitted to be a slightly larger so it would carry more cargo and pay itself off. Yes. It's an investment. Yes, it is. It's yeah. a workhorse. So it was built in a little village called Spencer's Island in New Scotland. Ah, you mean Nova Scotia. I know, exactly. And your favorite name for a bay, the Bay of Fundy. The Bay of Fundy. There's okay. much fun to be had in the Bay yeah, of Fundy. Yeah, there you go. The highest and lowest tides in the world. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. I remember actually from the Guinness Book of World Records when I was a kid, I used to look through that book all the time. And they had pictures of the bay because the tide and some of the – it varies in different yeah, areas. Right. But it's, I think it's 33 feet at one point. Wow. And they, so you see this picture of this like tugboat sitting at the port. And then when the tide's all the way down, it's like down in the mud and you couldn't get on it if you wanted to because yeah. it's so low below the pier. Yeah. It's kind of crazy. But a great history and long tradition of uh, shipbuilding. Yes. And seafaring stories. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So Joshua Dewis – built the Mary Celeste, and she was the first ship he had ever made in a shipyard. Now, he had built smaller boats, but this was a ship. And although she would later be modified, as Forrest mentioned a minute ago, she was originally 99.3 feet long, 25.5 feet at the beam, and she drew about 12 feet of depth at just shy of 200 tons weight. Now, originally she had a single deck, but a second one was later added. Over time, Joshua Dewis was quite successful. He built over 30 ships, according to Paul Begg's book. Right, and he was also invested in this, uh, the building of ships and of seafaring trade, because that's it's kind of his business. So he's building yes. the ships, he's investing in this cargo trade. He was in the right place yeah. at the right time. He started oh, yeah. his business at the right time, and he did very well at it for quite some time. And none of his other vessels that I know of have this kind of black cloud over them. Well, no, and it kind of goes to the quote we mentioned in part one, where he was like, I, I don't know what's wrong with this ship. I, I don't think it's any of our folks. Yeah, you know, that was like, a relative of his, actually. Right. So, and Oh, the, yes, right. The Amazon, however, was the first one that he built, and she was built completely by hand. There were no sawmills in Spencer's Island. And Spencer's Island, by the way, is not an island. It's a village. Mm-hmm. It's a village called Spencer's Island. <laughs> well, it's, it's island-like. <laughs> yes, it's island-like. So she launched on May 18th, 1861. And there was rumor, even on her launching day, that she got stuck on the ways due to being built on fresh green timber, which seems plausible given she was his first boat and maybe the wood wasn't dried out enough. But as a result, she may have been far less forgiving than his smaller schooners had been about being built of green wood. Very wet wood. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So we want to add here that Captain George Spicer, who was a witness to much of the Mary Celeste's early history as the Amazon— apparently claimed that absolutely nothing went wrong when she was launched. So maybe that's apocryphal. He was there. Yeah. He saw it happen. And that's the thing about these stories and something that we've learned over the past two years with a lot of the stories we've told. Facts get conflated and, you know, this, people are starting to get – they're doing interviews. They're getting a little bit of fame because they're associated with a story like this. And embellishments happen when they retell it. So oh, it's hard to pick through all that. Did she really get hung up being launched? I don't know. If she did, another horrible – 
sort of bad luck omen, I would say, to have her get stuck on the ways on the way down to the water. Well, it didn't help also that throughout the years, as, as you're talking about these stories that we cover that span 100, 200 years. 144 years. On yeah. The, um, uh, over that time, it's a lot of the telephone game yeah. and not being helped by the media and publications of the time. It's like that Los Angeles Times article from, I think, June 1883, totally retold it, <laughs> completely, you know, adding elements of dramatic mystery. Right. Which is, that's the fun part. That's what I like. But, uh, you know, reading that quote here uh, with the, the made up parts here, every sail was set. The tiller was lashed fast. Not a rope was out of place. There was the fire burning in the galley. The dinner was standing untasted and scarcely cold. There you go. And the log was uh, just written an hour ago. They figured out the part that's the most creepy. Yeah. It's like, what? They were here five minutes ago? You know? They're selling newspapers. They're By selling the way, newspapers. I just want to say, I know it's a, been, it's a long time later, but I want you guys to keep that in mind when you watch the news today, because it's still happening. Well, anything that major that happens, even, you know, horrible disaster, MH370 or whatever, I just take it all in, not going to form any opinions until a long time after that, because... Nobody knows. And, and no. so what happens now is that we're much faster, of course, than the, uh, the media of uh, years gone by. But now it's just a, a vomiting of every little detail they can latch their hands on, even if it doesn't make any sense or is true. Right. They have to report. They have to come up with content constantly, yeah. every minute. So I always, you know, I'm not going to pass judgment right away. I'm going to let that one no, sit. But you know what the best example of that is? And it, yeah. this is going to be a micro tangent, but like what I always think about us living here in LA, every now and then you turn the TV on, there's a high-speed chase happening, you know, yes. once a week. Yeah. <laughs> more, and more so. There's yeah. nothing better than one of those gets dragged out really long. Yeah. And having to listen to the conversation between the reporter who's reacting to the footage in the helicopter or is in the helicopter and the person back at the desk that have absolutely zero information yeah. about the person in the car who was fleeing. Right. Except for OJ. Everybody knew about OJ, but I'm <laughs> yeah. saying, this car is black. It appears to be going 80 miles an hour. Yeah. It's really dangerous. There's going to be traffic up here, and it's just over and over and over. And like yeah. an idiot, I usually watch it to its conclusion. Well, the, the, <laughs> yeah, right. there was one time, though, and, and, and sadly, we were recording at the time and taking breaks here and there, and I think we were checking the news and seeing the bulletins come in. Yeah. And that was San Bernardino. And oh, that's yeah. where we heard, maybe it was from Reddit, somebody was posting uh, oh, yeah, there was radio live. clips. Yeah. Just hearing those and hearing pops in the background, like, oh, boy, this is, this is big. Yeah. So there's some things you can kind of piece together, and now we're a little more, probably a little more savvy just to, due to our exposure. But think about it at the time, okay, the late 19th century, early 20th century, when somebody hears this, or even Arthur Conan Doyle's story, which he didn't mean for people to take really seriously right. as fact, people are like, wait, what? Yeah. This is true? We should investigate this. He's like, ah, hold on. By the way, his story yeah. implied a, ra- a race ride or something. It's a horribly yes. racist story. Well, yeah, a different time. <laughs> yeah. But it has to do with a guy that he's really anti-white and decides to mutiny the ship right. and Kill take it to the, yeah, the coast of Africa. Kill everybody on board, except for the named title, the eponymous uh, character in the book, J. Habakkuk Jeffson's, J, that's his name, J. Yes, Habakkuk Jeffson, Jeffson. With a PH for the F sound. And his statement. So the name of the, uh, the short story is J. Habakkuk's Jeffson's statement. Yes, and on top of that, it's possible because Sir Arthur Conan Doyle yeah. renamed her the Marie Celeste in that book, and a lot of people think that that's why later in history she became referred to as the Marie Celeste over and over again. Prior to that, it had been Mary and Mary is the actual name of the vessel. He may have been doing that to nod to the fact that this is a made-up story, but whatever the reason is, it right. was the Marie Celeste in his story, and 
the real ship was known as the Mary Celeste. Well, that just goes to show how things can stick. And yeah. once they stick, they're hard to get unstuck. Yes. Yeah. So getting back to the Amazon and her early history, her ownership was originally broken down into 64 shares that were split among a bunch of farmers, merchants, Joshua Dewis himself, who had built it, at 16 shares, and then two mariners. Now, at this time, you stop to think about omens, bad luck, and coincidences. If you're not driving, commuting, or working out right now, this might be a good time to maybe make a little list of things that might have portended bad luck for the future of the Amazon, which would eventually become the Mary Celeste. We're going to start with this one. The very first captain of the ship, Robert McClellan, who was one of the mariners and a part owner at 464 shares, took the Amazon on her first voyage up to Minas Basin to pick up some cargo. That's the place, actually, that is famous for some of the highest tides in the world. Oh, it is. Okay. Yes. Now, Captain McClellan was a young man and, in fact, had only just gotten married. But on the Amazon's maiden voyage, the very first voyage of this vessel, he got sick. He was overseeing the loading of the cargo. Yes. Right? And didn't feel well. Actually, after they set out, they had to head back to Spencer's Island, where he died of pneumonia on June 19, 1861, just a few days after coming down with symptoms. Ouch. Yeah, but a lot of people died. Of, a lot. You're yeah, right. This, back then, people just died. People were easily. dying yeah. a lot. There were a lot of things going on. But this is the number one event in the ship's history. On its own, maybe it's not a thing. Right. The first captain of the Amazon, which would later become the Mary Celeste, a healthy young man, falls ill and dies within days on her maiden voyage. It's just a little thing to tick off there on your list, all right? Probably not mm-hmm. a big deal. Probably not a big deal. So young Captain McClellan has passed. Captain number two steps in, a man named John Nutting. Parker. Nutting, by the way, one of my favorite middle names I've ever heard. (laughs) Yeah, Nutting, not a testament to his mental state. No, no, not at all. So when the Amazon set out at this point to finish her initial voyage with Captain Parker in command, on the way out of port, she ran into a fishing dam known as a fishing weir. Now, fishing weir is a structure built down in the water to trap fish. After that, they had to make repairs. So on your list, we can now add a second attempt at the first voyage Failing, with the first attempt ending in the death of the first captain on the first voyage. Not completely related. No. I'm not saying. I'm just saying. (laughs) It's not a uh, final destination type of death. No, but so now they're heading out yet again, Uh their third attempt to deliver their first load (laughs) uh, to London, and she successfully crossed the Atlantic and reached London. So there you go. And bring those little sigh of relief. Yes. So perhaps things are okay. The first couple of incidents are probably really just par for the course in, in this day and age. So they offload their cargo in London, picked up a new load for Lisbon, On the way out, they're heading down the English Channel. The Amazon collides with an English brig in the Strait of Dover. The brig sank immediately. Was there fatalities? No. I think there were 37 crew members on board that were all rescued. So the Amazon was able to rescue everyone. I just would still like to point out this is her second trip. (laughs) It's redeemed itself. She's collided with a vessel and sank it. Right. By the way, she's clearly a very stout ship. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, well built. Hats off to Joshua Dewis there. Yeah. After two years on the Amazon, John Nutting Parker moved to another vessel, and a new captain, Captain William Thompson, took command of the Amazon in 1863. For four years, she sailed along, a diligent workhorse, with no issues. However, in 1867, after delivering a load of corn from Baltimore to Halifax, she was on her way to Cape Breton in Nova Scotia to load some coal for New York. In Cow Bay, according to the aforementioned Captain George Spicer, who was eventually second mate for two years on the Amazon, there came a gale of wind and she went ashore, which means she ran aground. At that point, 
she was abandoned as a wreck. So this is 1867. This vessel at this point is only five or six years old. Right, right. Now, you had mentioned in part one that she had a period, like an 11-year period that well, was uneventful, but... what do you consider an, an abnormal event? Right, These ships are, run they, aground. They, they run aground, they bump into stuff. How many people out there have dents in their cars? Yeah. Is that normal? Well, yeah, that's normal. You're out there... Uh, I just want to recap quickly, yeah. though, to that point. Dead captain on the first one. (laughs) Ran into a fish dam on the way out after that. Sure. Then crossed the ocean successfully, sank a ship in the English Channel. Right. And then ran aground a few years later. I think from a human nature standpoint and what we understand, you know, bad mojo, it's the span of time that these things happen. Yeah. If a thing exists for 100 years and it's working and it's got 25 incidents yeah. That happened to it over. It's like, well, okay, that's not so bad. You have long stretches. And certainly the Mary Celeste had a good span of uh, maybe four years where really nothing happened. Even the mate said, we did the uh, the foreign trade. They'd yeah, the West Indies. The West Indies, the Mediterranean, yeah. across the Atlantic a bunch of times. Nothing happened. Yeah. You make a good point. I have exploding head syndrome. It happens about <laughs> twice a year. <laughs> that's not... I'm calling that normal. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> you know, in a lifetime, sure. But what I'm trying to explain here in my view, is that these are all variable factors. So take into account the stretch of time that these things are happening. Also take into account the nature of things happening. Yeah. Like if the mast broke in half and it speared, and it was like a, a final destination thing, speared oh, yeah. the captain down through the top of his head and right. killed him that way. Like, ooh, ah, that's a little... Okay, well, that's, that's what pretty, happens. When you make the movie version, you make that the movie, definitely happens. That would take more notice than like, well, he got sick. You know what? A lot of people got pneumonia and died. That's yeah. pretty common. Not to play too much of the skeptic here, but I want you to keep in mind, the listener here, the, the short amount of time, the strange things that happened... And then, yeah, you have to decide, is that is yeah. that unusual? Or we present that, the yeah. facts, folks. You guys make the judgments. And another thing before I forget, because I always do, we all have a number in our own heads as to how many strange coincidences can happen before something seems really freaky. Is yeah. it 50 coincidences that happen? It's like, okay, you know what? Maybe something's going on here that's unexplainable. Two or three, probably not so much. You can explain it away as just being coincidence. So after languishing as a wreck... For a brief period, not too long, because you can't let that kind of stuff sit around too long. Or the boat no, it is rots. Total loss, yeah. yeah. A man named Alexander McBean purchased her from her original owners. And this is what happens when you have a, a seven-year-old. This makes me think of <laughs> Sylvester McMonkey McBean, okay. creator of the Star Off Machine and Dr. Seuss's The Sneetches. That guy was a charlatan. Oh, right. Anyway. Oh, yes. Okay. Uh, <laughs> okay. McBean seems like he might have been a flipper. Like a house flipper is now. And and here's the thing. She was sold to him via power of attorney from the original owners, which was irregular and generally not acceptable for an exchange of this kind. So I can't help but wonder if the Amazon's original owners were so done with her, they felt lucky to get anything for what was left of this unlucky ship that in just seven years had had a young captain die on her maiden voyage and a few collisions before running aground. Well, I will say a lot of money had been put into her throughout the entire span of her life. Yes. Probably yeah. far more than she was worth just because you want to keep using it. So yeah. it's kind of like my yeah. wife's uh, 1988 Nissan <laughs> You just Right. Well, you, you, you <laughs> Which keep, we still have. People do that with houses car. yeah. and cars that you become attached to them even though they're, they're kind of crummy. But this was a business. This, I mean, exactly. nobody was, I don't think anybody was sweet on this vessel. I think everyone's just trying to make money. It's just easier to fix something up and keep it producing 
Yes. Than to build something from scratch again. Well, McBean, I guess he only had her very briefly, and then he sold her to a Captain Richard Haynes for the paltry sum of just under $1,800, according to Begg's book. Right, right. She was clearly in very, very poor condition to be sold at that price. Haynes, however, to your point that you just made, spent $8,800 on repairs and then registered her in America under a new name, the Mary Celeste. Now, keeping track on our list of bad ideas and the history of the vessel— Renaming a vessel should be right at the top of no no. <laughs> yeah, I just, yeah, you're just not supposed to do it unless you do that whole thing where you burn the old name and yeah. whatever, which it, I'm pretty yeah. sure that Captain Haynes didn't do. Professionally, it's just bad form. All right, so Captain Haynes to me seems like he may have been a flip or two. He kept the Mary Celeste less than a year. And, it, and here's some interesting information at this point in the story. Who named her Mary Celeste? I mean, Haynes likely, since he is the one who re registered, but where did he get the idea? A lot of people say no one knows, but there is one interesting Mary Celeste known to history, believe it or not, and she was Galileo's illegitimate daughter. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. So sister Maria Celeste, who was born Virginia Gamba, was Galileo's oldest child and apparently of the three he had, the most intelligent and like-minded to him. As all of his children were, she was born from an affair he had with a beautiful woman from Venice named Marina de Andrea Gamba. And her baptismal certificate apparently said, daughter by fornication of Marina of Venice. And Galileo's name <laughs> yeah. was not on the paperwork. Yeah, but everyone knew that she and him were together. Right. Now, is there, and is he there... was not married, by the way. He oh, just was, yeah. he was very pious and, and he didn't, I guess, ever intend to get married, but he had three children. Well, he loved so the action. What is that supposed to, is that like a <laughs> no. dirty joke? No, all I'm saying, <laughs> well, come on. He, he's a, you know, he he's a, Galileo, man about town. He's a man. <laughs> what I'm saying is that uh, back then, impropriety was very much frowned upon. So people still did what they do that you just had to kind of keep it on the down low. It's Fornication, not, you mean? Illegitimate children, you know, yeah, now true. it's now nobody cares, you know, but um, well, let's talk about this. It's yeah. this interesting time. Sister Celeste was actually born the year Dominican friar Giordano Bruno was burned at the stake in Rome for insisting the earth traveled around the sun. See what I'm talking about? <laughs> you, you have to be careful about your outward appearance and things that you say. That's true. Yeah. However, whatever the case in history, Galileo could not afford dowries, and being a pious Catholic, realizing his daughters were born out of wedlock and would never be able to marry, he sent them both to convents. Well, there you go. He's, yeah. you know, not a totally a deadbeat dad. No. She was his favorite daughter, obviously, but she died tragically in April of 1634 at the young age of 33 after becoming ill with dysentery. That's what I'm saying. People died of uh, what we consider curable and kind of easily cured maladies. Yeah. yeah. But back then, it was fatal. Well, and back in the 70s, everyone used to play the Oregon Trail game, and it would say, What? You have died of dysentery. <laughs> Do you don't remember that? Have you seen that meme? Uh, yeah, I'm You've familiar with dysentery. that. I, I forgot about it. It just would happen. Though. You'd be playing and you would just... Would you would just you suddenly would, yeah. die of dysentery. You suddenly died of dysentery. Well, okay, so... I don't so, know. Yeah. Maybe it's too soon to make that joke. But it's, it's been 382 <laughs> years since she yeah. died, so it's okay. a safe, safe cushion. Anyway, Galileo was extremely close to her, as we said, and she was truly the apple of his eye. And in fact, they are buried together at the Basilica of Santa Croce in Florence. Other sources have reported that there was another Marie Celeste who was a nun, but our research points to those two people, Galileo's daughter and Sister Celeste, being one and the same. I I think whatever the story, it's fair to say that naming a vessel after a beloved daughter who died at a relatively young age Mm. might, again, not be the wisest (laughs) idea. So I do think we should add it to the list of bad ideas. Well, first of all, just renaming it, I think no matter what, even if you called it the uh, SS Sunshine, you know, it's just... 
It's bad form. You're, yeah. As we... As that sunshine. Well, as we've had an old Navy man himself, retired Navy man, Carl, write in to us that he can attest to how superstitious sailors can be. They don't often talk about it, but being on ships, people see ghosts all the time. Yeah. But it's bad luck to talk about it. Right. So even that, the superstition has a superstition on top of it. Right. You know, you don't, don't mention me these things. Yeah, and this will be a, a recurring theme throughout is like, why do they do that? It's such yeah. a... Companies do that. They rebrand themselves. Well, um, and that's – it's funny you should mention that, rebranding, because that's exactly what I think happened. I mean, long tangent short, maybe Captain Haynes renamed the Amazon because of her bad fortune. Maybe he was concerned word would get out that she had been wrecked once already. He might not have been aware, but she'd already had a spotty history that raises a lot of those superstition red flags. Yeah, I think that's yeah. an important point to make. Yeah. yeah. He may have also had a daughter that he loved dearly, and he knew the story of Sister Maria Celeste. He renamed the Amazon after her as an act of devotion. Whatever the real reason is, we may never know why he named her that. But it's now one of the most famous ship names in history. It's tied to any kind of mysterious disappearance on a ship. That's what the people go to. That and that oil tanker they named the Condoleezza Rice. Oh, (laughs) Oh, dear. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not sure how famous that is. (laughs) Well, I remember reading it. Anyway, Captain Haynes didn't have her long, though, before he was bought out by James Winchester and Daniel Sampson in late 1869. Now, according to Paul Begg's book, some sources say Haynes was in debt and she was actually seized from him. I'd read that as well. Again, maybe some bad luck. Yeah. I'm just saying, I'm just saying. No, it passes hands a lot. It does. As as we're seeing. But maybe they all do. I don't have a history of every shipping vessel. We don't know everything that happened with all of them. Maybe they frequently changed hands, and that's not unusual. Again, you look at cars, some one owner, and people people want to buy those cars. Some cars just get passed along from college kid to college kid. That's true. Now, Winchester is the man who was her owner when the mystery took place. He was a former captain who was trying to move up and become a ship owner. He didn't want to be at sea anymore, but he understood the business. And he worked her hard in the West Indies as well. And during this time, she did well. No more strange deaths, no collisions recorded, just normal wear and tear that required a lot of repairs. But that's typical of any ship working so hard at sea for an extended period. He eventually spent $10,000 on a massive overhaul during which time the Mary Celeste received two new decks. She was lengthened by four or five feet, and her draft was increased from 12 feet to 16. She was now 282 tons, almost 100 tons more than she was when her keel was first laid. And some of her rigging was modernized to ease the burden of sailing her because there had been changes in Yes, in it's, it's, and, a, it's a bigger, heavier ship. And that's a lot of money back then. That's a fortune yes. uh, that you're pumping into a, a Ford Pinto. You know what I'm saying? Like, but, <laughs> well, you, no, but you're using it. that's not fair. She's a good ship. No, no, she's a good ship. I, yeah. Yeah, no, I'm sorry about Pintos that. Pintos are not. And Pintos are fine. You know what? Yeah, uh, but if you rear end them, yeah. they blow up. They, aside from that fact. Which, by the way, is yeah. a weird connection. Uh, when yes, we get true. to the theories, we'll Exa- talk. <laughs> Very good. Very good. Foreshadowing. Yeah. Here. No, it's a hatchback. It hauls stuff. It's fine. I've known people that have had them okay, all their on. years. You're not going on and on about Pintos. No, right? but what I'm, my point, though, is that you're putting a lot of money into, you know, somebody would say, oh, this thing's got a lot of wear on it. Maybe you just add another five grand and build a new ship entirely. Yeah. It's proven it can haul stuff. Right. So he does a major retrofit, again, increasing its commercial value. Exactly. Yeah. So it's now 1872, just 11 years after the Amazon was built by hand in Nova Scotia, and a new ship, probably unrecognizable to Joshua Dewis, who built her, was about to ply the waters with one of her new owners on board as her captain, Benjamin Spooner Briggs. 
Some people were apparently a little taken aback when we first started talking about our underwear. <laughs> I would be one of those people, frankly. Well, Mack Weldon is back, and just as before, they are still better than whatever you're wearing right now. Unless you're wearing Mack Weldon, of course. Mack Weldon is more than just amazing underwear, though. They are also hoodies, socks, undershirts, and even sweatpants, all of which you can get at a Mondo 20% discount using our promo code... Legends. We have had a few complaints from werewolves about the Silver XT2 antimicrobial underwear, though. Everyone knows that silver and werewolves don't mix, but that underwear is so comfortable, I'm wearing it right now. In fact, I was back east visiting friends a few weeks ago, one of whom was a listener. She didn't believe I was wearing Mack Weldon. Not the first time I've displayed my underwear in a restaurant, either. Well, that is unfortunate. I'm telling you, man, though, I've replaced pretty much everything I've had with Mack Weldon. And not only does the stuff look good, it performs well, too. It's even suitable for sporting activities. I found the same thing at my Kimpo lessons. Mack Weldon's website is a breeze to use, and shopping is easy. You can really get a good deal by placing a decent-sized order and then getting 20% off of it with our promo code, Legends. That's right. So go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off using the promo code Legends. And remember, if you aren't happy with your first pair of MacWeldon underwear, you can keep it and they'll still give you a refund. No questions asked. That's MacWeldon.com, promo code Legends. Okay, so let's talk about Captain Briggs. Yeah, interesting guy. Very interesting yeah. guy. His whole family were mariners. Every, except for one brother. Yeah, except yeah. for one brother. He was very well respected. He was, in fact, a mason. It had nothing to do with this. No, nothing, no, no, it didn't. And uh, he was a member <laughs> of multiple lodges, including the one in Gibraltar, actually. A very pious man, very straight yes. arrow. Teetotaler. Considered a master seaman. Indeed, yeah. a master mariner. and uh, For his age, too. He wasn't that old. Yeah. Now, we've, we've talked a little bit about the run of luck that the Mary Celeste had um, when she was the Amazon. Now she's the Mary Celeste. He owns a piece of her. And it, sometimes you wonder, have you ever had that thing where you kind of wonder about a decision you made that might have changed your whole life, a simple little thing? Oh, no. I've, had, ch- I've had a few in my life. The, yeah, the fork on the road kind of decisions. Yeah. Well, before the Mary Celeste had ever even set sail, Captain Briggs and his brother Oliver both had been at sea for quite some time, and they were sick of it. Well, they were going to start a business, I believe. Yeah, yeah. They, well, they actually, there was a hardware store that I think they wanted to buy. I don't think they were going to build it, but they wanted to go in together on this hardware store so they could be home with their families more and, you know, just have a simpler life. I remember this quote from uh, Russell Crowe, and yeah. it did a great film, Master and Commander. Master, which I love that movie. I think we both loved it just because yeah. of its rawness and just the fun. Uh, it's a whole series of books, of course. But yeah. no, they were interviewing him, and they're saying, well, that must have been fun. He's like, yeah, it was It was fun, but people don't realize it's really rough. Yeah. It's re- Imagine, where do you go to the bathroom? And yeah. just like he said, just that life, he said, my hat's off to uh, the seafaring folk of years gone by. It's a really rough lifestyle that you get into, but the salt gets in your blood and for a lot of these guys. Yeah. And they spend a lifetime on the sea, or you get to a point like Captain Briggs and his brother, it's like, it's just very itinerant. And Yeah. And it's also dangerous. Yeah, it's dangerous. Especially at this time, it was yeah, dangerous. Yeah, you're, you're away for long periods of time without your family. That's mm-hmm. why, you know, Captain Briggs brought uh, his wife and daughter along. That's made, right. Made arrangements, which I don't think was very common, but... You miss your family. So, yeah, exactly. You know. But anyway, a hard life. They wanted to leave that and kind of settle down, be landlubbers for a while. Yeah. They were going to uh, buy in to this hardware store, and they had, you know, sort of their life savings. And they were just about to pull the trigger on that, Oliver and Benjamin, the brothers, who both were master mariners. And at the very last minute, they pulled out. They decided not to. And this is that fateful decision that, ah. that was unfortunate for them. And, and the reason they did this was because their dad— 
Captain Nathan Briggs, who yeah. was a master mariner as well, had invested in something when they were kids, a business, and it financially devastated the family. They lost their home, right. everything, and yeah. it took a long time to recover from it. And they remembered that, and they just kind of thought, well, you know, maybe we should stick to what we know. Well, invest in something that, yeah, that they know about. Yeah, yeah. so they both invested in ships. And the one Benjamin bought shares in was none other than the Mary Celeste. Oh, you're buying into your own business there. So, and Oliver bought shares in another ship. So both brothers are setting out to sea again. They could never know that both of the two vessels they invested in, instead of the hardware store they wanted, would be their last investments. Well, none of us ever really know which what your last thing is. Well, yeah, yeah. I'm, you're really screwing. My, I'm trying to set up some drama here. <laughs> no, it's very dramatic. You're undermining my thing. drama. No, I'm just saying at the time, it's just like I'm going to die after this one. Like, yeah. no, you don't know that. You're just no. going about your life. No, but I, I think be they our last was, podcast for all. Well, they, no, don't say that. <laughs> you're scaring me. Yeah, I'm they trying to scare like, you. That's okay, the point. okay, and or scare and the, the listeners anyway. Exactly. Yeah, they were making a shrewd business judgment at the time. From what they knew, it's like, hey, we don't know much about really hardware stores other than uh, what you use on a ship, but we do know about shipping yeah. and sailing. So let's get back into that. He was investing in the Mary Celeste, which was the, uh, the ship that he was captaining. So it seemed like a safer choice at the time. Yeah. yeah. And here's the interesting thing. You know the expression, two ships in the night, people who yeah. never see each other. Like at, at, some, at some points in my marriage, I remember that <laughs> when my wife was working on a, uh, a TV show in New York, and she would be gone when I was home, and I would be gone when she was home, and we'd always say, oh, we're like two ships in the night, and not getting to see each other very much. Yeah. Well, something very similar actually happened between Benjamin and Oliver. They actually just missed each other before the Mary Celeste voyage. Benjamin was waiting for Oliver to show up on the Julia A. Halleck. That was the vessel he had bought interest in. Right. While the Mary Celeste was being loaded in New York. I thought this was really interesting. Obviously, when we're doing research, we come across a whole lot of information, and we have to decide, call it down, figure out what we're going to leave in, what we're going to take out, what's mm-hmm. interesting. And one of the things that I actually didn't work into our outline here, but I still thought was neat, was the Mary Celeste, when she was being boarded, she was over at Pier 50 on the East River. You're right. At the time, Sarah, who was... Captain Benjamin Briggs' wife was on board. She was miserable while they were loading and waiting loads. She couldn't go anywhere because yeah. there was a horse illness in town. So uh, all the horse and carriages were not running. All yeah. the horses were either sick or they were quarantined, quarantined trying yeah. to keep them from getting sick. Mm-hmm. She was really stuck on the ship. And it's just interesting to think about. This is the time frame we're at. Now, like People still talk about the Upper East Side being a pain in the butt because there's <laughs> yeah, no subway right. line there. Right. You have to walk blocks and blocks and blocks more than you do anywhere else. They're building one, but yeah. they've also been building it forever. Right. And it's not open. So at least as far as I know. So – she was trapped on the ship. There was no way you could even get off and say, just take a break because there yeah. was no transportation, local yeah. transportation. So anyway, something interesting about the time period. The Julia Halleck was the boat that Oliver had invested in at the same time Benjamin, or roughly the same time that Benjamin invested in the Mary Celeste. Unfortunately, the Mary Celeste had to set sail before Oliver got to New York on the Julia Halleck. It was actually just a few days later. The Mary Celeste was loaded up. And set to depart on November 5th from Pier 50. Well, the weather was questionable. The weather was bad, so she stayed at anchor for two days off Staten Island and actually left on the 7th. I couldn't find out exactly how many days apart it was between the Halleck supposedly arriving, or his brother arriving on the Halleck, and their setting out. It's possible that they really, really just missed each other. He might have just been at anchor a few miles away at Staten Island. So At the same time, the De Gratia... 
was yes. in the same area, right? Yes. Also loading up. Also loading up. On a up. different schedule, though. Yeah, obviously, it gives you an idea of all the activity, yeah. uh, uh, marine activity in the area at the time. So the Halleck loaded up in New York and set sail for Spain, where she discharged her cargo without event. However, she was empty now with no cargo to take out of port in Spain. When a cargo ship is empty, it lacks stability. They're built to have a load in them. So, yeah, ballast. Exactly. So Captain Oliver Briggs, Captain Benjamin Briggs's brother, took on 50 tons of coal before heading out of Spain to make the ship easier to manage. It proved to be a fatal mistake. Mm. The coal generated a lot of dust, and it fouled the bilge pumps. The Halleck hit rough weather and started taking on water. With the pumps not working... She filled up with water, and this is actually called foundering, and sank. All hands but the second mate were lost, including Captain Oliver Briggs, Benjamin's brother, and his wife. This happened on January 8th, 1873, just 35 days after the Mary Celeste had been found abandoned at sea. In fact, the salvage inquiry hearing for the Mary Celeste was going on when the Halleck sank. Both Briggs brothers were lost at sea within weeks of each other, on the vessels they had purchased interest in after backing out of a plan to buy a hardware store. Coincidencia? You don't know. Bad luck in a short span of time. Yeah. Okay, let's stop there for a minute and quickly share a message about our sponsors. Getting your mailing and shipping done can seem like a no-win situation. Going to the post office takes up a ton of time, and leasing a postage meter is expensive with all kinds of long-term, multi-year commitments and hidden fees. Luckily, we know a better way. Stamps.com. With Stamps.com, you can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package right from your desk using your own computer and printer. You can even get special postage discounts you can't find at the post office. Plus, Stamps.com is more powerful than a postage meter at just a fraction of the cost. You can save at least 50% compared to a postage meter, and you can stop making those time-consuming trips to the post office. You're constantly going back and forth to the post office to ship our merchandise, right? Nearly daily, <laughs> and, and it's a hassle. I tell you, not only is it 15 minutes each way with traffic, my car actually got hit in the parking lot last year by someone who backed up without looking. Oh, nice. That trip cost me $1,000 and a seriously high amount of stress. Oh. But since we started using Stamps.com, my life has gotten a ton easier, and managing our store has become so much easier. I'm mad at myself for not trying it out sooner. It's one of those things where after you've been doing something forever, you realize that you were doing it wrong forever, for such a long time. Well, at least we're on board with them now. And the digital scale is awesome, too. Right now, sign up for Stamps.com and use our promo code LEGENDS for this special offer. A four-week trial, plus a $110 bonus offer, including postage and a digital scale. Don't wait. Go to Stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in LEGENDS. That's Stamps.com. Enter LEGENDS. Dude, I crammed so much knowledge for this series. It's a lot to take in, but it's also a rush, kind of. I mean, I love learning about new things, and especially subjects that I've always had a passing interest in, but didn't have the time to pursue. The Great Courses Plus is perfect for that, and that's why we love it and keep telling you about it. You can learn about anything that interests you, anytime you want. The Great Courses Plus gives you unlimited, on-demand access to stream video lectures on thousands of topics presented by award-winning professors. You can learn about World War II, medieval Europe, or the Vikings, or explore new interests like how to draw. And you can stream these short video lectures on your schedule, wherever you are, from any device. 
I love that part of it. We want you to sign up so you can start watching courses like the one we just watched, The Skeptic's Guide to American History. Okay, well, you know how Hamilton is all hot right now with, yeah. the, with the great uh, the musical and all that? But if you really want to know about Hamilton, you got to check out this course, and it's taught by Professor Mark A. Stoller. And the episode I'm on is number five, Confusions About Jefferson and Hamilton. So you're getting the real deal here. And his point being, we're mistaken nowadays if we think we can categorize these guys as like, you know, Jefferson being more liberal and Hamilton being more conservative. Hamilton is actually more aristocratic and Jefferson was democratic for the time, but it's not the same way we think about it now. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Well, right now, as one of our podcast listeners, you'll immediately get a free month of unlimited access to all of the Great Courses Plus lectures when you sign up. Don't wait. Start your free month today. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends. Remember, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends. Okay, so I think this is a good time to talk about the rest of the Briggs family. If the Mary Celeste herself wasn't cursed, it sure seemed like they might have been. <laughs> well, again, <laughs> I'm just saying. Just olden times and people didn't survive very long. Yeah, but they, listen to this. We just covered how both Benjamin and his brother Oliver died within a few weeks of each other at sea. That was actually a ways down the line for an inordinate amount of tragedies for the Briggs family. In 1855, several years earlier, Benjamin and Oliver's oldest brother sailed from Galveston as a mate on a ship. Just three days out, he died of yellow fever, and they dropped his body overboard. The family didn't even get to have a funeral for him. Right. All right, so now we got three all dying or disappearing at sea. The next year, in 1856, Nathan, their dad, the patriarch of the family, retired. He was fortunate enough to be able to attend his daughter Maria's wedding that year. She was 25 which at the time was a late age to be married. She married a family friend who was, like her father and brothers, a sea captain. His name was Joseph D. Gibbs. Maria sailed frequently with Captain Gibbs, just as Sarah had sailed with Benjamin. In 1859, Captain Gibbs' ship collided with a steamer off Cape Fear. There were some survivors, but not Captain Gibbs and Maria. They were both swept overboard and lost at sea. On the plus side... They had left their newborn son with Sophia, the Briggs family matriarch, and also the namesake for Captain Briggs, uh, Sophia Matilda. Unfortunately, that little boy himself died less than a year later while still an infant. So the thing about all this stuff is, you know, it was dangerous working at sea, to be sure, and we've mentioned that. Men were lost all the time, but the amount of death dealt to the Briggs family was kind of astronomical, and the ocean wasn't even always a factor. Benjamin and Oliver's dad, Nathan, was a master mariner as well. He and his wife, Sophia, had five sons and one daughter. Nathan commanded respect. He brought his boys up to work when they were aboard his vessels. He didn't drink. He didn't even allow alcohol on his ships when they were under his command. He was also fervently religious, as many people were at that time. However, Nathan was struck and killed by lightning on June 28, 1870, just a year before Oliver and Benjamin were lost at sea. Now, the thing is, Nathan was long retired at that point. He was not at sea when the lightning got him. He was standing in the doorway of his house. Yeah, well, you know. So, yeah. Sorry, that's not funny, but I mean, it's... Well, no, it's the last place you'd think. Yeah, he wasn't under a tree or under a a large antenna. Well, there had been a horrible thunderstorm, and he heard the thunder and apparently jumped out of his chair and went to the front door to take a look outside. I myself have done this, by the way. And then as he was standing in the doorway, there was a second strike, and his wife, Sophia, came running in and found him laying on the ground dead. 
No, like, it's killed not instantly. A, yeah, no, lightning strikes are a, a bad thing to experience, and we've had a couple of fatalities here, I think, within the last month. Yeah. I think one was on a jet ski. Yeah, it's not- Here in Los Angeles, you mean? Yeah, yeah. close in the region here, and yeah. then one uh, not in this region, but you don't get special powers. There's no. nothing special about it. Uh, no. If you're lucky to survive, you have health problems uh, after that, ever after. Yeah. This is the point I want to say about the Briggs family. Sophia, the matriarch, outlived every single one of her children and her husband yeah. as well. Oh. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. No, a lot of misfortune. Again, not uncommon for the era and uh, for all of human history uh, prior to that. People dying of dysentery, the flu, accidents to one family in particular in a rather short period of time. Makes you wonder. It does make you wonder. And their bad luck, to be fair, started before Benjamin came in contact with the Mary Celeste because there had already been a death in the family at that point that was premature. Oh, right. right. So, you know, you can't necessarily tie it all together. But you can say that things, you know, as they yeah. often say on Dateline or those T-shirts, and then it got worse. Okay, so looking again at the timeline of events, the Mary Celeste was discovered on December 5th, 1872. It's been reported both December 4th and December 5th. Well, I maybe I think you, could, you could explain this because there's a difference if you calculate it by land time and yes. sea time. Yeah, exactly. So or it depends on land dating. Yes, yeah. where you are, your frame of reference. Okay, right. Yeah. So what was going on in the world in 1872? Well, famous Dutch painter Pierre Mondrian was actually born in March of this year. Just six years after this story takes place, Sophia Sellers' oxen will fall into what will famously become known as the cave-in pit on Oak Island, ah. Nova Scotia, while plowing a small field. 350 feet to the west of the cave-in pit, the money pit had already been being excavated for 77 years. Now, if you've just found our podcast, look for our four-part series on Oak Island. When you have a whole weekend of nothing to do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, only a few days after the Mary Celeste was found, the HMS Challenger sailed from Portsmouth, England, on a four-year expedition that laid the very foundation for the science of oceanography. Mm. On November 9, 1872, just two days after the Mary Celeste put out to sea for Genoa, Boston had the largest urban fire in its history. Sixty-five acres of downtown were burnt to the ground, and at least 30 people were killed. The Great Chicago Fire was just one year earlier. So after the De Gratia towed the Mary Celeste back to Gibraltar for the salvage hearings, there was a lot of speculation on what had happened. Charles E.D. Fay, whose book, The Story of the Mary Celeste, is considered the definitive study of the case, thought that the course she took, according to the logbooks, was a bit odd. There's no way to know why she took it, but passing south of the Azores was a good deal more treacherous than the northerly course the De Gratia took. Did she take that southerly course under duress? There were pirates. There were. Around the time, yeah. But maybe something else was wrong. Maybe something was wrong with the vessel. And that'll mm -hmm. come, and we'll talk about that in the theories here in a minute. Now, we had mentioned in part one that she had three and a half feet of water in the hold. Oliver DeVoe, the De Gratia's first mate, reported that it must have entered after abandonment because during the salvage journey to Gibraltar, which he commanded, she took on very, very little water. In fact, she took on less than he knew the De Gratia would often take on in the same amount of time. And the De Gratia was brand new. It was only a year old. So essentially, the Mary Celeste was better built than the De Gratia. Yeah, she was yeah. already had some years on her, but she was not well, leaking as bad. She'd been retrofitted, so people repair things. They, you know, you get reinforced. That's true. Yeah, it's true. So some people have speculated that there was some kind of poisoning that caused the crew to abandon ship. You would think that that would have affected the De Gratia crewmen as well, though, because they ate from the ship's stores as they brought her in to Gibraltar and yeah. suffered no illness. Right, they did not get sick. 
DeVoe also noted that a sounding rod had been found just dropped down on the deck. Now, this is a device kind of like a dipstick for engine oil on your car. Use it to see how much water is in the bilges, which you can't see. So you can determine if your ship is taking on more than can be pumped out and therefore essentially sinking. So did they think that was happening? Did that make them want to get off? Why did they throw that sounding rod down on the deck? That's not where it belonged. No, I would trust DeVoe's opinion because he is a very solid and uh, steadfast uh, first mate and lots of experience. And that was his first conclusion was that it was near the hatch, one of the open hatches. Yeah. So he surmised that they took a reading like, oh, my God, uh, we got problems. We better start uh, forming an evacuation or emergency plan here threw the rod down because it was out of place. Right. There's no reason for it to be on top deck there. Right. So, and here's the other thing to remember. Morehouse had split his crew up to sail both vessels back to Gibraltar at great risk. And that's dangerous because he's got less crew than he needs to operate his own vessel. Right. The De Gratia. And then he's putting a skeleton crew over on the Mary Celeste. Of three, right? Of three, which was all torn up with lines missing and sails torn and things missing. It It was a hard ordeal. And it delayed their uh, it delayed their sailing time. Yeah, so yeah. it was a tough decision to make, and he didn't make it alone. He called the crew in for a meeting, yeah. and they sat down and they said, "Look, you know, we can salvage this if we salvage and bring this ship in with her hold, right? With her cargo." You're talking about we uh, might make more some money. money. Yeah. yeah, but uh, Morehouse was criticized by this, especially by Flood during the uh, in, you know the inquiry here. Yes, yeah, Frederick Solly Flood. Yeah, for having a bad, made a bad decision on this, but it's like no, that just seems uh, he was being shrewd. Yeah. So in in the Mary Celeste at this point, like I said, she required a great deal of repair work to get her right. Now, once that was done, she could nearly keep up with the De Gratia. However, rough seas and fog separated the two just before they got to Gibraltar and they lost sight of each other. The De Gratia sailed into port in Gibraltar at 4 p.m. on Thursday, December 12, 1872. 17 hours later, 17 long, agonizing hours, I'm sure, for Captain Morehouse and anyone that was concerned about the crew members on the Mary Celeste, Not 12, as we said in part one, but 17 is what I later determined. The Mary Celeste sailed into port in Gibraltar. Do you know what day that was? Uh, Is it a fateful day? Friday the 13th of December, 1872. Well, another reason to go back to our Oak Island uh, podcast there. (laughs) I I can tell you now. (laughs) The Knights Templar. I I looked this up. There were only two Friday the 13th in 1872. This was the second one. There was one in September. So that's the day the Mary Celeste, after being abandoned at sea, found abandoned at sea with no sign of the crew or the family on board, (laughs) comes into Gibraltar after being towed in for salvage. And she should have been there on the 12th, but the fog set in and separated her from the De Gratia, and she came in on the 13th. Oh, are you saying this is a message of some kind? No. Okay. I'm not saying. (laughs) I'm not saying. I'm just saying. No, I know. It's it's another interesting little tidbit there to consider. Long series of coincidences, as you might say. Well, yeah. Hey, it's not science. It's pseudoscience. I'm just just pointing some things out. Now, when DeVoe finally made port with the Mary Celeste, he sent the following letter to his wife. Quote, My men were all done out when I got in here, and I think it will be a week before I can do anything, for I never was so tired in my life. I can hardly tell what I'm made of, but I do not care as long as I got in safe. I shall be well paid for the Mary Celeste. Yeah, it was worth it to them. At least they thought it would be. Yeah, (laughs) at the time. Now, I, I know we mentioned before the sewing machine oil vial that was upright on Sarah's sewing machine. There was also a reel of cotton that was also upright, and additionally, there were square panes of glass stored below deck that were unbroken. And I just wanted to say that these would have been smashed up had the ship been through rough seas. So I just want to point that out before we mm. get into our theories here. 
But without getting into complex navigational explanations, there's also reason to believe that the Mary Celeste had been under control for several days after her last log entry on November 24th because of where she was found. This was something that Flood pointed out. Was it possible she had been controlled longer, but no entries had been made in her log? Might have been. What circumstances would that be? Well, maybe they weren't on board for very long when they were making navigational changes to how she was sailing. Maybe they popped on and popped off. I don't know. Maybe the log that reported where she was going was lost in the yawl with everyone that abandoned her. As we pointed out in part one, and I'd asked you about this, it's – it's part of your daily duty to make a daily log entry. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. so and that was found in the first mate's cabin. Yes. Right. Now we're talking about a shortened amount of time between being abandoned and discovered. Yes. Which makes it, again, it increases the creep factor. Yeah. Because maybe the y'all uh, is not so far away then from right. the ship. Right. Yeah. Maybe they could be found. Or it could have been had anyone right. looked, bothered looking. Yeah. Right. So the Attorney General in Gibraltar, whom we've mentioned before, made it clear that he thought foul play was to blame for the Mary Celeste's abandonment. He tried everything in his power to figure out if the crew had mutinied or the crew of the De Gratia had participated in some kind of violence. He also explored the idea of fraud, which was not uncommon. Ships can be overinsured and deliberately sunk, and in fact, that later happened to the Mary Celeste herself. Well, she was overinsured, they thought, at the time. They did, yeah. but in, in looking back on it, I believe the investigation showed that it was not inordinate. Right. Yeah, It exactly. was a normal practice. to. Yeah. The, it wasn't necessarily a red flag, the amount no, of insurance no. she had. You have to keep in mind, Flood, we haven't uh, talked about his character, but he was kind of guy that yeah. gets locked on one kind of thing, kind yeah, of dramatic, and that's it. Yeah. Like, no, no, no other explanation is possible. It's got to be this. Yeah. And that's the kind of guy he was. Now, as Forrest mentioned in part one, the witch hunt hearing took so long that the costs incurred in having the Mary Celeste sitting there began to rack up for sitting at port, along with the cargo aging and the original recipients wanting it delivered. So much time passed that any salvage award would probably be canceled out by the expenses of the investigation. Poor mate DeVoe would never be rewarded for risking his life to bring the Mary Celeste in for salvage. Yet another tale of bad luck attached to the Mary Celeste. Now, as we alluded to earlier, eventually the Mary Celeste met an unkind fate. After going through a few owners, she wound up with a group that had hired a Captain Gilman Parker to sail her to Haiti from Boston with an expensive cargo on board. On December 16, 1880, the Mary Celeste set sail for Port-au-Prince with a cargo of 4,000 pounds of butter, 150 barrels of flour, 30 bales of dry goods, 975 barrels of pickled herring, 125 casts of ale, 54 cases of woman's high-button boots, and some hardware. This is all according to Mr. Begg's book. It was all insured with five separate companies for $30,000. This was to be her last voyage. Captain Parker mysteriously fired his first mate, Jacob Knopf, for being drunk the night before she was to set sail. But drink was not the real reason. The Mary Celeste was deliberately run aground outside Port-au-Prince, on a well-known and well-marked-on-the-charts coral reef known as Rochelois Bank. Rochelois? I don't know if I'm saying that right. Yeah, Ro- Rochelois. Rochelois Bank. <laughs> okay. The, the owners and Captain Parker filed an insurance claim for the lost goods, but the insurance company wasn't having it. It might have worked out better had she actually sank or been broken up, but her cargo was easily recovered. Uh-huh. They instituted a full investigation, and after determining that some of the cargo wasn't what it seemed, 
they realized that the entire cargo was, in fact, a fraud. Uh, what are you saying? It wasn't actually uh, all the makings of a delicious cake? Uh, for example, one case that was supposed to have cutlery in it, valued at $1,000, was filled with $50 worth of dog collars. Oh, dear. This was why the first mate was fired. He saw what was loaded into her hold, and I guess he wasn't on board with the scam. Well, that's the first rule of a scam. Make sure everyone's on board with it. Yeah, yeah. and we're using on board. It's, a, it's the right way to use it. It is the right, exactly. There you <laughs> for go. The, for the first time. It's a win-win. The high-button boots were cheap rubber overshoes. Oh, those ladies will be disappointed. Well, mm-hmm. they never would have seen them. But in the end... Here's an important fact. Mm-hmm. Even the insurance fraud didn't work out on the Mary Celeste. <laughs> yeah. Ultimately. <laughs> yeah. I see your point there. Yeah. Even that was cursed. Yeah. That's, that is my point. Okay. So she met her end on a reef outside Port-au-Prince, a long way from where her keel was first laid in Spencer's Island, Nova Scotia, 19 years earlier, when at least 11 people were all still alive who died after direct contact with the unlucky ship. <laughs> We'll be back in one week with part three of the Mary Celeste series, where we'll discuss the theories around her disappearance. We'd like to thank Casper Mattresses, Mac Weldon, Stamps.com, and The Great Courses Plus for their support. Visit AstonishingLegends.com forward slash sponsors to access their special offers for our listeners. You can also support our show at Patreon.com forward slash Astonishing Legends. Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees, and the theme is by Judson Crane. Sound design is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to The Ark and its lead researcher, Tess Feifel. But most importantly, we want to thank our listeners. You can find us online at AstonishingLegends.com, as well as Facebook, Patreon, Twitter, Tumblr, Google+, and Instagram. Copyright Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Good night. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.